So I'm talking to Wendy here at the Pearl table. So how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. A bit tired. Yes, it's very, very tiring. There's lots of people around. Um, you, just to describe the table, there will be pictures in the show notes. You've got the camels, you've got all the books, you've got uh, loads of stuff to give away. You've got the tuits, which yes. are round, uh-huh. so that you can get round to it. So what is the purpose for you, or what's the benefit for you of coming over here? You are just telling me that you're selling these books and you're yes. selling them at cost. What's the, that's a bad business model. Um, I made money using Pearl. And my partner, my partner and me, we made so much money using Pearl that we don't have to work anymore. We are wealthy. And we can support the Pearl community and the, and the rest of the open source community for the rest of our lives. And that's what we're doing. And we think we're going to give something back. So we buy books and um, um, the, the, the publisher uh, charges us the cost price plus transport costs. And that's the price that we sell them for. That's fantastic, and you've got a wide, wide range of Pearl. So just in case there's anybody on the show that doesn't know what Pearl is, can you tell us what Pearl is? Um, Pearl is a dynamic, uh, open-source, free software uh, programming language. It's 26 years old now. You can use it for everything, and it has been used for everything, ranging from um, making a booking reservation system like Booking.com to uh, things for Amazon, eBay, Marketplace, uh, big scripts, large scripts... Uh, very small scripts. I've got a book here about one-liners. Um, you can use it for everything, and it is being used for everything. I even know people that make games with it, interactive games, uh, text games. I know people who make graphical programs with it. So, yeah, you can use it for everything. It's not the uh, most easy programming language to learn in the world. How, how would you say to that? Um, I think you're wrong. It's one of the easier programming languages to learn. Certainly if you compare it to, uh, to Java or uh, C. Um, I've got a book in front of me that teaches you the beginning Perl, that teaches you uh, Perl in such a way that you don't have to be a programmer when you start reading it. And at the end, you, you will be able to make uh, an automated response to DMCA takedown notices. Whoa, very yes. impressive. So. What, per, what book would that be, pray? Beginning Perl by Curtis Ovid Poo. I, I, Poe. I have... Uh, I have Teach Yourself Pearl in 24 Hours, an excellent book. Indeed. Um, before Curtis Poe wrote his beginning Pearl, uh, I always recommended uh, uh, Teach Yourself Programming Pearl in 24 Hours. I always um, advise that because it's so easy, easily written. It, it reads like a novel, and yes. at the end you know a lot of Pearl. But beginning Pearl, it goes wider and it goes deeper. Wider in subjects and deeper in material that you learn. Yeah, thank you. I'll buy that in a minute. <laughs> so is there anything... Do you, you're involved, you're living the life that many of us would like, and you're still involved in the Perl community. How, yes. how, how you, you wrote on your thing that you're a uh, Perl developer. Where did the thing go? Oh, I'm losing stuff. I'm losing it here now, folks. It, it doesn't matter. We'll, do it. we'll, get, oh, we'll get it in a minute. Um, so you're still a Perl developer? No. No, I've never been a Perl developer. I've, I was a Perl scripter. Um, from 1994 to 2001, I was the boss of a website building company, XXLink, in the Netherlands. We were the first company building websites there in 1994. And I, I made little scripts. And, well, medium-sized scripts. But I was never a good programmer. Uh, my partner, she's the real, real super nerd. She, she makes modules for CPAN. She has been one of the core developers of Booking.com, changing the system. Um, 
she speaks at conferences and stuff. I am doing the marketing, I'm doing the personnel stuff, I'm doing the, 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 the bookkeeping and everything. Is, I have, I'm the, the more creative of the two. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm searching for little camels because of the camel is the logo of Pearl. I'm looking for companies that can make stickers and buttons for me and I buy books and I negotiate deals with publishers like what reduction do you give me because I'm selling to the Pearl community so etc so that's what I'm doing and I'm bringing people together that's what I'm doing so you have you read all these books because one thing that I've noticed about trying to pick a good Pearl book is I never know where to start and everybody recommends oh get the O'Reilly books but to be honest, it's like d- jumping into a sw- swim pool, not knowing how to swim. Um, well, you see behind me uh, two uh, cupboards filled with pearl books, and that's the largest library of pearl books in the world. I've collected that that collection. It's it's uh, over a thousand books, and they're all different. And um, I've got all the Dutch language pearl books. I've got 95 of all the English language pearl books, and I'm now starting to get the original French and German pearl books, which are not translations of English books. I'm not getting them. And if I recommend you a book, I would recommend, if you start learning pearl, start reading Beginning Pearl. And if you already know pearl, um, start reading uh, Modern Pearl, because um, don't don't use pearl the old way with confiscated... uh, uh, Obfuscated pearl, yes. Pearl is not line noise anymore. Pearl can be gentle and elegant and short and readable. And I've seen many, many examples of that, of people that left the old ways and make it better nowadays. So, modern Pearl. Cool. Is there anything else that, uh, that you want to talk to us about uh, that's coming up in the Pearl community, especially here locally? Well, one of the buttons that we have says, uh, Pearl, Pearl is very much alive. Yes. And one of the things of having a booth at Fosdem is that every now and then somebody who thinks he's funny and original comes by and says, Pearl is dead. And then I look at him and I look at the table and I look at all the volunteers around me and I think, Pearl is not dead, Perry. Pearl is so very much alive. We've got over a hundred user groups in Europe alone and all those user groups come together at least once a month for dinner and technical talks. And many of those people cooperate in uh, improving modules, in improving the core of Perl, in organizing hackathons, for instance. A hackathon is a hacker's marathon. And we sit together for two, three, four days and fix problems that people have reported. Well, that's alive, as far as I know. Sounds good to me. Listen, I'm going to let you get back to it. Uh, Actually, I'm not. I'm going to hang up this and then I'm going to pick out a nice pearl book for myself and uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks very much for the interview. Welcome and thank you for asking. Hi everybody, this is Ken again. I'm up here on K2 at FOSDEM 2014 and I'm talking to uh, Frederick. How are you doing, Frederick? Fine, thanks. Uh, What project are you here uh, talking about today? Well, GBus community, which regroup a lot of projects, more than 40, I think. So, mainly we are talking about the container, the GE6 container, uh, which is uh, AS7. But, um, well, we can talk about RHQ, uh, Cupid, uh, GBPM, whatever kind of project. But 
Okay, so what is uh, JPOS Application Server 7 then? So it's a, it's a G6 container. So what it is, it's, um, I would say, um, a group of um, ki different kind of modules uh, based on the GVM. And then instead of reinventing the wheel, there's different modules um, offer you the opportunity to use a communication between application, uh, improve the security, and so on and so far. So you will not have to develop uh, this kind of stuff in your application. You will have to focus on what the application should do. Okay, so this is for deploying Java applications in a web server environment. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, what other projects do you have under your... Uh, under your so you're a solution architect for Red Hat. Yeah. So businesses would come to you and say, okay, help me out here. Yeah, for example, one, one really known, uh, I would say, problem that customer has is related to the business management process, business process management. And uh, GPPM, for example, on the community side, is responding to that needs. That means that you can, I would say, um, create some processes and assign application to each step of that processes. So that's one of... What, what is Cupid then? Uh, Cupid um, is uh, working on a standard protocol, which is um, it's a kind of messaging, um, I would say, solution. It's working on uh, MQP protocol. So if you are working on a GMS, you've got two applications and they have to communicate together. So you are going to use a module named GMS. But GMS is a norm on the application side, but norm not on, I would say, the protocol side, the communication between the two applications. And so Cupid permits you to use the IMQP protocol, which is a standard, and then you can choose whatever kind of agent coming from whatever kind of provider. Do you have any other projects that you support? Well, we cover everything here. Uh, no, we can, we can talk about other kind of projects, but, uh, well, it's... Uh, for example, InfiniSpan, it's um, uh, a way to externalize the cache in your application. Then you will not have to, uh, I would say, pay attention of uh, the, the, the cache propagation between different applications. It's already done by, I would say, InfiniSpan, so you, have, you do not have to take care of this. Um, well, there is other, but I do not have it in my mind. So. And is this something that uh, the hacker community gets involved in, the development community gets involved in no, quite a lot? No. I mean, there, there is different, I would say, for example, the project uh, Application Server Set, seven, sorry, is, um, I would say, a bundle which contains a lot of different kind of projects, for example, Hibernate, for example, um, I would say Picketlink or Picketbox, um, and all of these modules, I mean, all yes, all of these modules are managed by different community, which are not, uh, um, it's not mandatory that they will be linked together. So the goal of the uh, Application Server 7 community is to gather all together and to respond to the uh, specification of GE6. Okay. So, what new stuff is coming out next year in the short term? Well, I think that uh, the next one is Wildfly, which will be probably uh, GE7 compliance. So, that's the next major one. Otherwise, uh, maybe GBPM is also a new, a new thing because it's going to bring uh, BAM uh, to the GBPM world. So, yeah. Anything else that I missed in the interview? Oh, that's fine. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks a lot.
Hi everybody, this is Ken. I'm on K2 at uh, FOSTEM 2014. I'm at the open office uh, booth and I'm talking to... Uh, I'm from Hamburg, Germany. Yeah. Uh, I'm working for IBM at the Apache Open Office Project. Yeah. Uh, and I'm here at FOSTEM to meet all the open source people enthusiastic about making all these stuff and software available for free for everybody so they can use it uh, and yes don't have to stick on a certain vendor on something like this and uh, it's it's incredible to see how how um, what what which, which kind of uh, patients the people are here uh, working together um, also how friendly um, it is even between different uh, Linux distros or even with uh, Apache OpenOffice and LibreOffice. So the booth is right beside us. Yesterday we had an, an um, dev room together on um, Office productivity, also on the Open Document file format, which is our both native uh, file format. And yes, it's amazing um, event to be here and to be part of these open source uh, development stuff. Just so the people uh, know, OpenOffice is a uh, is coming from StarOffice, which was a Sun project. Yes, and it, it's an alternative Office suite to something like Microsoft Office. Yeah, um, I know there was a lot of questions about the split off of OpenOffice and LibreOffice, but I see here that you know you're mentioning that you're co-developer doing development talks. So how is the community going to to continue? Do you think there'll be more cooperation or or will yeah. the projects move apart? Um, I, due to um, so, uh, OpenOffice now at, at Apache, so we are at, at Apache license, and at Apache we have a certain rules regarding the software from third-party stuff that we can use regarding the licensing. Um, LibreOffice um, is um, started on GPL what uh, or LGPL, what what um, the main um, OpenOffice was before uh, it was donated to to Apache. Now they are on MPL. They had rebased on, on um, the Apache license to do the relicensing on MPL. So we have currently a little bit uh, problems of getting back the stuff that is doing on the LibreOffice into the uh, Apache OpenOffice. But the other way around, it's quietly happenly um, um, that the LibreOffice has, has their mirror of the Apache OpenOffice um, repository in their repository. They are cherry-picking the stuff, and that's what uh, Apache software projects are about, so making uh, open-source software for the public good for every use. So uh, it's great to see that not only my stuff that I'm doing at Apache OpenOffice um, is now used or downloaded by, I think today we have... Uh, 90 million downloads since we are at Apache, since our first release in, in, in May 2012, and also used by the LibreOffice uh, users, so um, I have no problem there. I'm, I'm not, as a developer, as an open source developer, um, being paid for it is a good thing, and so I don't have to care about um, protecting what I'm, I'm, I'm programming, so I'm just open source and everybody can use it so I have no problem. Currently um, just taking what um, what LibreOffice is doing is not possible for the Apache project because of the licensing stuff. So in this way there is we, we need more corporations and the dev room showed that we can uh, work together on project and on ideas but on the coding it needs to be evolved and let's see what the future will bring here. Yeah. I don't know and I Quite often these things tend to work themselves out in time. Yeah. 
So, um, what uh, new stuff is happening on the open office, uh, open office front? What new stuff is happening? Um, it's quite hard. We are evolving. Um, we are new at Apache and, and Settle Arts down. We are getting things right now. A lot of languages are coming up. Every release we have five or six more. We are doing some stuff regarding the build system to get it easier. In the former days, it's not easy, and LibreOffice has did a quite well job. And in their build system, we are trying to do the same here. Projects are going on. Integration, especially for Windows developers, into um, um, integrated development environments like Eclipse and Visual Studio are ongoing. And then, yes, just bug fixing, little features, um, we are currently uh, on feature freeze for our next release, 4.1. Uh, we will uh, planning to bring out a beta, I think, hopefully in three or f uh, four weeks to uh, have some kind more people looking at it um, and to have um, the final version ready um, at the end of the quarter, beginning of April, something like this. Okay. How long have you been working on the uh, Open Office code? Uh, I joined um, uh, Sun Microsystems in the uh, summer of 2002, yeah. um, mostly involved uh, in the uh, word processing component. And um, in December of um, 2006, I joined the um, OASIS uh, Open Document TC for the standardization yeah. of the file format. So I'm also on the standardization here. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. And. Um, Yes, and then there was the change regarding Oracle acquiring and they are no longer interested in supporting the open office. And so I have got the good possibility to be uh, employed by IBM to continue my work because it's a great project. It's, when I started there, I was formerly working on a small team uh, just doing project work where 10 people are using my software. And then I came to, to open office and... Uh, Millions of people are using your software. They're giving feedback and they're giving you all feedback. Some people are pissed when you have put a bug in it and they blame, for, blame you for, for it. But then again, when you fix it, they are come back. And it's incredible that um, so many people are losing um, OpenOffice and LibreOffice and all the other variants that we have on this code base. There's also uh, Oxygen and all this stuff. Uh, also the, the people that are making the Mac port and uh, the beginning and so on. So it's really, really great that office productivity is not stick to the one on the major um, software that is out there. Okay. Well, we have uh, quite a lot of people who, are, um, who use accessibility tools in order to use uh, LibreOffice. And they say that the Orca screen reader project has sometimes difficulty reading some of the uh, open office um, applications do you uh, what would be the best way that we could try and convince developers like yourself to spend more time on accessibility issues yeah um, we had recently for the windows platform integrated the i accessible to work that um, ibm is uh, formally doing on their own fork that what's called symphony and that is now integrated and will be uh, part of the next release i forgot to mention it so this is only for the windows platform yeah. all the atk stuff that was started the Open Office um, project, I think former days, and I think Michael Beeks made the first stuff here and Quell and so on. Um, I don't know. Um, currently, I see no focus in our um, um, development community to focus on the on the um, yes on the Linux side of accessibility and on ATK supporting. 
uh, APIs, but um, I think it depends on um, how much demand is coming in. And also, um, yes, we are driven by volunteers, what they want to do, and also companies that investing and if they have demand to support these kind of accessibility stuff here. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because the guys are unable to use the software because it's inaccessible so they can't you know, we want to be able to get them to a point where they can start contributing code to the project but they can't get involved in the project because of the accessibility yeah, issues. Is so now that I have your business card <laughs> I know exactly who to contact about bugs. <laughs> yeah, um, a colleague integrated the stuff regarding Windows. Um, I was in the former days little involved in, in, in the um, accessibility part for, for the Linux platforms, but it's long ago and as I said, currently there's I see no effort in the Apache Open Office community regarding this, but um, there are some people that are coming up. I think there's one of, from the Netherlands, uh, Christoph uh, Stuber, that is uh, some, sometimes around also in the LibreOffice project. And we recently started some kind of call to, as we see that the LibreOffice is picking up the iAccessible 2 integration, we let more or less an open letter to at least cooperate um, on this stuff, I, uh, accessibility for this project, just, just to get... If they made fixes in the iAccessible 2 stuff that has been integrated in OpenOffice, contributed, yeah, yep. contributed back, um, that would be a nice thing. So um, LibreOffice um, is doing good things and um, taking uh, what we are doing is a good stuff because our stuff is more used. Um, it would be great if just the bug fixes in the, in the parts that they have cherry-picked uh, contributed back. That would be really great first step for, for further both-way cooperation. Perfect. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you want to talk to me about or uh, have we covered most of the things? How can, if there are anyone uh, out there who wants to contribute to the uh, Open Office project, how, what's the best way to get involved in the community? Yeah, the best is to get involved is to come to the dev list. Um, we have some kind of websites um, set up where you have some kind of orientation modules, so for different interests, for QA people, um, for development. And um, it's it's depending on your... You need some patience currently. So it's the LibreOffice people are doing a lot of work on mentoring new people. They are more. Uh, we are f had to found our new home at Apache, not so much people to to be um, as responsive as we would be. But when you come to the dev list, never give up. Uh, we will help you with building your first open office on the platform you are want to work on. And we are currently working on, on better integration into uh, EDE. So just come there, speak up there. It's open and transparent. Um, or our dev list is the first place to go. Always when somebody steps up, um, couple of hours later he's pointed to the right direction where he gets the orientation so. and there's no reason why somebody can't contribute to both projects yeah, no no problem we have people that are contributing to both projects yeah. for, so um, just an example Regina Henschel a German teacher is contributing to LibreOffice already source code and, and to Apache OpenOffice keeping the stuff together in this area where she is interested in so no problem um, okay listen I'm going to stop there I'm going to go down and interview your competitors you. <laughs> no problem <laughs> hi this is uh, Ken again FOSTEM 2014 K building level 2 extreme end elastic search and you are 
Hi, I'm uh, Honza Kral. I'm the Python guy for uh, Elasticsearch, the company behind Elasticsearch, Kibana, and Logstash. I have never seen these projects before in my life. What do they do? Distributed RESTful search and analysis. Yes, so that's that's Elasticsearch. That's basically our flagship product. That's also why the company is named named the same. Yeah. And it's a, it's a distributed data store based on Apache Lucene that does uh, that does search and analytics with your data. It's it's uh, as as it says RESTful RESTful. So everything we do, we do over HTTP and we do it with JSON. So uh, if you index documents, it's JSON. If you run queries, the queries are also JSON. Uh, it's distributed, so it scales quite well over, uh, over horizontally ac- across many across many machines. Uh, that ties well into the use case with Logstash because Logstash is a centralized logging solution. So imagine you have a bunch of servers and just you just want to aggregate all the logs from all the services running on all those servers. How is that different from Syslog NG or something? So Syslog NG also only does uh, part of it. It will it will absolutely aggregate the logs into one place. Uh, but it's sometimes difficult to set up, and it's still it's still very platform specific. Logstash is more open, more configurable. It's basically an open pipeline. You can think of it also as a as an ETL tool to extract data from somewhere, transform it on the way, enrich it, parse it, uh, put it into a unified format, and load it into a data store of your choice. Be it flat files, Elasticsearch, MongoDB, whatever. Okay. So. And uh, the benefit you get if you decide to load it into Elasticsearch is you get Kibana, which is a, which is a JavaScript uh, front-end for Elasticsearch that was developed specifically to be used with data from Logstash, although it can be used for other data as well. And that will give you easy search and discovery over your logs, including pretty pictures and graphs uh, for, for those who want it. That will enable you to easily discover what's actually going on see uh, on one glance all the anomalies that, that's happening in your environment. So imagine, for instance, in a world where there are lots of API calls going around to different machines and they all report various different things. Product X goes in here and it becomes product X is recognized and comes back as product Y. And would it be possible to trace all that sort of stuff using this system? Absolutely. That's one of our, our biggest biggest use cases when people want to aggregate data from different systems. Uh, what you described is, is a little extreme use case. We can, we can keep it much simpler. You have a logs from your database, from your web application, from your web server, and your load balancer. Yeah. And you want to see what's going on. You see a spike on your database. Does it correspond with the spike on your load balancer and is everything okay? Or is there a spike on your load balancer and nothing gets through to your application? Like, this is something that you can see on one glance. No need to discover anything. No need to log into four different machines, do a grep, and then try to parse the different different time formats that different log formats use. Yes, that's, that is actually horrible because the only true log time format is ISO 8601, as everybody listening to Hacker Public Radio knows because I've said it many, many times. Okay. Um, the... But is this then more for system administration as opposed to uh, using it to manage a complex, uh, a complex API-driven environment? Uh, so Logstash started fr- from the operations point of view. Yeah. Elasticsearch itself is just a generic data store, so that's, that's used all over, all over the spectrum. With uh, Logstash and Kibana, uh, it's always discover what's going on in your environment and anything... 
and people have started using it for for other things which we didn't which we didn't uh, foresee in in the beginning. People realize that log is nothing but just a document that has a date time yeah. that is a timestamp. So people started using actually logsash to index Twitter stream or stuff like that where the same logic applies you're just consuming some stream of data that have a that have a timestamp you're analyzing it or or parsing it enriching the data and loading it into your target data store how how difficult is it what sort of underlying knowledge would you need to have to configure this it's it's not that hard if you just want to if you just want to get started you download logstash it's just one jar file that you can run it will even start its own embedded uh, elastic search with kibana installed so you can get up and running very quickly uh, if you want to just start consuming data let's say from standard input the, the simplest possible example you can definitely get there within within half an hour from absolute zero knowledge to looking up logstash downloading it and getting through to this example okay and the third component is what now uh, so uh, the third component mentioned there is Hadoop, which basically just advertises that we uh, do integrate with Hadoop. Uh, we have a package called Elasticsearch Hadoop that lets you load data from Hadoop into Elasticsearch and also lets you use Elasticsearch as a backend for some of the Hadoop integrated solutions like Hive and Pig. What's Hadoop? Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, Hadoop is... That's a hard question. <laughs> So uh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a I'm not a Hadoop person per se, but Hadoop is a is a uh, is an environment for doing distributed uh, batch processing. Okay. So it, it comes f- uh, from the very beginning, where you have HDFS as a distributed file system. On top of you have uh, the MapReduce system, which is the original Hadoop, which is a framework to doing MapReduce jobs in a distributed environment. Okay, good answer, and a very cool logo, if I might say so myself. Yes, uh, so it's it's the elephant that's uh, they they have a whole theme going around it with uh, with hive being the elephant disguised as a bee or something like that. They okay, cool. Um, anything else that I, I need to know about? Uh, everything is of course open source. BS, uh, BSD two uh, Apache two licensed. Uh, we do offer, as a company, training and support for those who want it. Otherwise, everything is uh, all the information is available on the on the website elasticsearch.org yep. and elasticsearch.com for the company. Anything new coming up in the in the coming time? So glad you asked. Uh, we are actually releasing currently the 1.0 version of Elasticsearch that should come out in the ne- in the next few weeks, which is January 2014, uh, and that will that will. As the number would uh, suggest, it's a our stable. stable version. We are breaking some backwards compatibility in order to be able to move in the move boldly towards future. The new future. Yes. The new future we uh, dedicated ourselves to not break backwards compatibility again, okay. at least until the next major version, which is not planned currently. Yeah, so yeah. we should okay. be fine there. We're. Uh, uh, we're introducing a lot of new cool features, including reworks of uh, the aggregations framework to do uh, cool aggregations inside of Elasticsearch. Uh, Snapshot Restore, which is a which is a very nice and clean API to do uh, backing up of your entire cluster to to other arbitrary storage, for example S3, local file file system, or aforementioned HDFS. And uh, some other gener- generic improvements like the Cat API and everything. Along with that, we also uh, released uh, last week actually our first commercial product, 
which is Marvel. Marvel is a plugin for Elasticsearch. It just lets you monitor what's going on inside of your cluster. And uh, even historically, like what's the typical question, what happened yesterday at 3 a.m.? And is that open source? That's not open source. That's a commercial product. It's free for development, but it's closed source. And in production, it costs $500 for five nodes per year. So it's nothing too crazy, but it's definitely, definitely no open source. But to, to be also fair, we don't have any special hooks in Elasticsearch itself for this to work. We're just using the publicly available APIs. There's nothing stopping you from taking the exact same APIs, feed the data into Graphite or any other solution and do everything everything yourself. Yep. This is just basically a prepackaged solution for people who don't want to who don't want that or are not familiar with Elasticsearch enough to know what to monitor for. Okay, well, I think I know enough. We'll, there'll be links to everything in the show notes along with a picture of the, the, uh, the board here. And thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Ken at Post 2013, K Building Level 2. And after talking to the uh, openoffice.org folks, I wanted to come down here and talk to the LibreOffice guys to see if what they said was true or not. <laughs> so I'm talking to Cor. How are you doing? Uh, fine, thanks. It's, uh, it's uh, an interesting booth and fair, and uh, lots of people that come around and talk about software. And uh, we have nice hoodies, so it's really uh, complete. <laughs> So you're here on the booth, you're basically uh, yes. pimping LibreOffice for everybody. Uh, yes, yes. So the, yesterday there was also a development session where you and OpenOffice and all, several other people were involved in uh, progressing yes. the desktop. What, were you involved in that? No, I was not involved in the, in the sessions. It was the ODF uh, room. Yeah. Uh, I was not involved at I was at the booth the whole day. Okay. Yes. So just in case there's anyone out there that doesn't know what LibreOffice is, I wonder could you give them the, uh, give them the spiel on what it is? Yeah, yes. Well, LibreOffice is a, is a fully functional uh, office suite uh, uh, with uh, spreadsheet, uh, word processor, presentation, uh, drawing tools, uh, maths, and a lot of uh, extension. And uh, it's a great community around LibreOffice that makes it really uh, fast and uh, speed development, uh, things like that. Okay. And, and, and of course, uh, it, it's available uh, on all Linux distributions by default, and it's, uh, it's on Windows and Macintosh. And, uh, since they uh, split from OpenOffice to LibreOffice, um, yes. I, th I think we were talking about that earlier on, that there was a uh, Oracle, for one reason or another, decided to let it go. So probably yes. best not to focus on that so much. Yeah. But do you, do you see that, they, that you're picking up um, users on the Windows side as much as uh, you have done on the Linux side? Uh, I, I, it, it's obvious that most of the users of LibreOffice are Windows users. Uh, well, because uh, most people outside there use Windows, so it's obviously that there are more Windows users than uh, than uh, Linux users with uh, LibreOffice. Okay. Yes, I'm sure. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So, what are the uh, what are the plans for uh, LibreOffice development in the coming year? Are you privy to that. Sorry. Okay. What's uh, what's going to what's new in in LibreOffice in the coming year? What can we expect to be released? Okay. <laughs>
Ja, je knipt wel, hè? Ja, het knipt wel dit. Kim, moet je het er even bij hebben, het kleine ja, pak, Ik pak wel even alles erbij. Ja, er, er zijn maar heel weinig uh, kleine muntjes, ja. of kleine briefjes. Uh, uh, gewoon wat, uh, wat aan is te komen, wat aan ja. zit te komen. Ja. Oké. Okay. Oh, uh, yes. Nu uh, even over nadenken. Uh, daar zat ze weer. Uh, yes, oké. Okay. So what stuff is coming up in uh, LibreOffice in the coming year? Yes, uh, there's some uh, heavy work going on on the, the, the user dialogues and there's a new, a new, a new way to, to handle them so that they can be easy, resizable and that's close to finish. So users will see that it's a better interface. Uh, there's a l- work going on on uh, many speed improvements in Calc with different uh, processors. And uh, we always focus on better interoperability with DOCX, XLSX, the Microsoft uh, XML formats. So uh, stuff like that is uh, definitely a focus. Uh, and we have two new releases a year, main releases. And every month there are uh, smaller bug fix releases. So there's a high speed of all kind of larger and smaller stuff that's coming in the project do you feel things are settling down a little bit more now that you've been going for a little while and all the backlog of changes have come in no 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 there, there's nothing settling down it <laughs> full steam ahead yes it, it, it's uh, it, it's really speedy development and, and you see more people are involved in QA and more people are uh, are, are helping with localization and, and, and more people are uh, doing development, larger chunks, smaller chunks. So it, 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 it's really a rush uh, ahead and uh, there's so many things that, uh, that are just good to add new functions but also so many things that we already improved over the past year. So it, we're still running ahead. And, but, but it's fun just because it's, it's a huge team and people join and it makes work uh, just fun because you share it. Okay, cool. There's one thing that I have to ask is the there are quite a lot of accessibility issues with uh, running LibreOffice. Um, some of our listeners have tried to run it and they have a problem with speech readers. Um, is there a way that we can kind of push the development so that we can make it a lot more accessible than it currently is? Um, I don't know to what uh, specific version the, the, the people you talk about refer, but in the, the latest release, just three days old, there is the exp- as an experimental f- uh, feature is the uh, is the accessibility code that comes from IBM that had developed it some seven years ago. And in that time, they promised to give it to the OpenOffice.org project. So finally, it landed on the code base. And but it, it is uh, uh, marked as experimental in our code, in our user interface, uh, on purpose because we know there are some issues with it. So I, I'm not if if people uh, run into that issues, I'm I'm not surprised. We, we know that there are issues. And it's also when you look to Bugzilla where bugs are reported. You see that developers work on it. So, um, though I'm not a developer and I'm not, uh, I'm not able to tell people what they should do, uh, it, it, I just expect that in, in the next main release, uh, the real problems will be ironed out. And maybe also in the coming bug fix releases, uh, uh, that, uh, that a lot of problems will be solved. That's my uh, honest expectation. That is fantastic news and we're yes. all glad to hear this. You um, wear many hats. This uh, business card that you give me, what, yes. what hat is that? <laughs> that is that I'm a, a, a member. Uh, I'm a member of the membership committee 
honestly, at the moment, I'm chairman of the membership committee, but uh, one of the members. And uh, uh, LibreOffice, it is uh, developed, owned by the Document Foundation. And uh, if you want to be a member, it's not that you say, oh, I pay 20 or 10 euros a year. You can only become a member if you truly uh, contribute uh, in QA, in development, in in marketing or whatever stuff. If you are a member of the community, you can become a member of the uh, of the Document Foundation. Okay. And there's the, the little uh, committee, the membership committee that handles the applications and that uh, every year reviews people who are a member. Uh, are they still active? Uh, uh, do they have the right to be a member? That that's our job. One of our jobs, and for the rest, that, that's an official title. And for the rest, I contribute to QA and a bit of localization and marketing stuff. How did you start doing this? What, what led you to be in? Oh, did you just get no, annoyed no. one day and, <laughs> and decide to contribute? No, it it was uh, in uh, back in two thousand four. I started a company uh, dedicated to, to support. Uh, um, to, to deliver, to give support with uh, openoffice.org in that time. That was back in 2004, uh, based in the Netherlands. Uh, and I still do that. I, my company grows a bit, and so it exists for 10 years now. But when I, when I started to do that, uh, I, I found it natural to look at the project and to contribute. So I've been doing that along in, in openoffice.org. And with the split, when we decided in 2010 that it was good to have something new uh, I joined uh, I was one of the people who uh, set up the document foundation and uh, I, I just well all those years all those 10 years I've been active in the community okay so, very good yeah have you been uh, involved in the push to get uh, the ODF behind the ODF format as well or did Sorry. that were you involved in the ODF uh, format as well Oh, no, een Oasis. Uh, nee, nee. Misschien wil je de vraag even kort herhalen voor, om, om mooi te kunnen knippen, of niet? <laughs> nee, nee, nee. Maakt niet uit. Ik, ik knip no. niks. Oh! <laughs> it's going out. This, ah. Guys, this is going out on it. Nee, nee, nee. Oh, never mind. Uh, um, no, no, no. I've, I've not been involved in the ODF uh, development Oasis. Uh, no, no, no. No, okay. no, no. I'm just, because of my skills and my, my, my daily work, uh, I'm involved in, in end user support problems to make all, all those things work and the whole ODF while it's it's considerably important and I do explain it to the people uh, the, 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 yes but 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 the work behind it it's, it's not something I contribute to okay do you so you're out there on the front line do you yes. do you support businesses mostly or yes. is this yes it's business business administration uh, non-profit organization so you're yes. making money on yes on supporting free software yes obviously yes so yes. there yeah. is a business model out there yeah there's people. a business model yes yes but you have to um, the, the, the fun is if you know the software if you know how a community works how the product works that, that gives you extra strength but you have to be able to translate it to transform that into a language that people in business understand yeah. and you have to be able to look what people need and to offer that but if, if you can do that with any software of course there's business so what, what do you do do you go into a business and say hey I can run LibreOffice instead of Microsoft Office and I'll support training and what? No, usually people find our company via the web and uh, 
because they look for alternatives for running Microsoft Office. And then, well, depending on their knowledge or their needs, the, the, um, the, the number of seats in the company, well, we just talk and we see what we can do. And sometimes it's a short help, sometimes it's a large project with lots of different phases in it. So and is it mostly given user training or no, would it be, uh, there be an end goal to the project? It, it, it's user training that's provided. It is um, automation of documents or handy stuff to help people. It is templates. It's uh, also helping the, uh, at the system administrators with uh, all... Um, configuration of the product and it's also helping uh, to uh, run the product smoothly from the initial uh, phase where you do some um, um, pilots yeah well, yes where, where you do some well, looking for the way well where, when you're in pilots or uh, some analysis before that um, communicating with users, getting the right information from your users that you need in in all those projects. In this, uh, so it's it's quite a bro- broad uh, offering. So, have you experienced any hostility that people uh, are forced to use a LibreOffice product as opposed to Microsoft Office, or has that decision already been taken? Are you coming no, in? No, after no, that? no. Ob- obviously, not all people are happy with it. Um, there, there's always the hurdle that. Uh, using free software is about freedom and because of the freedom you can reduce costs oh, that's one of the things but obviously most people in business step into it oh I have to pay again to Microsoft let me get something free yeah. cheap and when users have the idea that their boss chooses something for them that's free because he don't want to pay them for their tools, yeah. it's not a good start. No. So that's uh, that's why I said uh, communication in a project to migrate to something as LibreOffice is very important because people have to understand. Okay, it is uh, you have to pay less, but we do spend money and we can get, have quality and it's a good project as business More support, etc., etc. Et yeah, yeah. Yes, okay, like cool. Yes. Is there anything else I missed or anything else that you want to talk to me about? Um, well, how do you like our boots? It's fantastic. It looks like a clothes <laughs> shop, to be brutally honest with you. It's like a? A clothes shop. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, a boutique. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we had some difficulty in preparing the boot. We had some difficulties to choose. And so we, we uh, the fun is when you are at the boot with T-shirts, yeah. uh, the developers pass, oh, I already have a pile of T-shirts, but, well, give me another one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. this year we choose for a lovely V-neck T-shirt, uh-huh. different and some hoodies and also sweatshirts without hoodies and some polo shirts so that was the problem to choose and that's what you see cool <laughs> but we have also lovely chicken stickers and mugs and a great banner i'll include a picture go stand over there and i'll yes. uh, take a photo listen thank you very much for the interview and i look forward to talking to you later thank you very much talking to the confine table so uh sorry what's your name and roger how are you fine thanks can you tell me about this there i'm just looking at your table and i see community-labs.net there seems to be cell phones or something going on 
No, not at all. It's about community networks and research on community networks. Community networks are IP infrastructure built by the people for the people. Yeah. Mostly wireless. This is how it started because it was the more affordable and available technology back in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, now we are moving into fiber as well. Okay. So extending the concept to fiber, it works as it did in Wi-Fi. And basically, it's about people doing uh, infra- a bu- yeah, and connecting it to the internet. So, so where is where is this? What? Where did this start? Who had this idea? I think it starts in parallel in many places. It yeah. was it started as questioning the privatization of internet that occurred in back in the one uh, the nineties. Yeah. So many people uh, raised questions, which were uh, left un- unanswered. But uh, the come up of uh, Wi-Fi technologies uh, was a good help there. Yeah. People start hacking the Linksys routers. Yes. Uh, the ad hoc uh, mode also helped, and then yeah, all this movement started. Uh, it's more. Maybe people know it uh, as uh, wireless communities. So like a mesh network or something like that? Yeah, meshing is one way of doing this. But um, it's more what? about, uh, it's a conceptual thing. It's about uh, going back to the roots to the internet because, uh, yeah, people disagreed w- with what happened in the 90s and said, uh, why not keeping the peering concept open and all this stuff? So the, the, the idea would be here that a group of neighbors would join together run network cable around and then share an internet connection or share their own internet connections? Uh, they, they, they set up a, a, a network, that's all. I mean to share no. contents. Just, just internet, a local network? Internet access comes afterwards. Yes. It's one of the services that you can have on top of this network. But you could think about other services. So give me some examples of, of what's going on here. Yeah, let's... Uh, well, I come from Giffinet, so maybe first I can talk about this project. It's a project based... Well, it started in Catalonia, Catalonia, uh, northeast Spain, uh, back in 2003. Uh, and it started because some local farmers had the, the problem of internet access. Yeah. We are in the EU, so we had some rules to follow, and these guys had to report about how they feed the cattle every day and they, they did not have uh, internet access to do so. Yeah. So they started doing some research. They were used to solve their own problems yeah. in other fields like water and uh, roads and stuff like this. So why not going for the, the telecommunication infrastructure as well? Yeah. So uh, and at that time, uh, the wi- Wi-Fi uh, technology was starting to be accessible for the standard people. Yeah. Uh, and after that, one uh, travel, one guy did to the States. They brought some wireless stuff to the country, and they yeah. said, ah, why not using this? And they start using this. They solved their own problem, their specific problem. But the day after, they realized that their neighbors had the same problem. Yes. So they, they taught them how, to, how they fix that problem. Uh, in parallel, they start talking to other people abroad that were... Fi- thinking about this stuff and having same same kind of problems so and this is how all started uh, at the moment Giffinet has about 20,000 nodes working nodes 
most of them connected in the same cloud. And as I said, uh, or maybe I didn't because I have already said this too many times uh, these days, uh, we are re- uh, doing the same with fiber. I mean, it's, it, it's, we are technology agnostics. Uh, we, we don't care about technology too much. It's just a means to achieve our purposes. Um, people who listen to Hacker Public Radio will be familiar with the Barn uh, project in the UK where we followed the... Um, a group of farmers again mm-hmm. who uh, put down their own fibre netter, dual homed, uh, using dynamite and loads of stuff. So um, we are familiar with, sort of with with the project. So what are the other two projects that you have here? Are they more or less the same thing? There are three projects. They are all EU funded projects. The, yep. co- the Commission Fund gives some money for these projects. Uh, these uh, projects are about to understand this new movement or this way of doing an alternative do, uh, way of doing infrastructure, infrastructure yeah. uh, we have uh, on the one hand Confine, it's a four years long project, yeah. it's a fire project, an IP project. This means that uh, it's uh, for the future research infrastructure of the European Commission. Yeah. Uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with uh, the. Um, Shit, no. uh, the Planet Lab uh, infrastructure. This is meant for researchers, and yep. this is okay. the same. It's an extension of the the Planet Lab. Yeah, we inspi- we were inspired by this, but to extend this to the community networks. So yep. basically, we are what we are doing. We have developed a full operating system to deploy uh, tests uh, on these devices. We spread this boxes among the community networks this is an atom based uh, device yeah just an atom uh, pc with a wi-fi network. yeah and then researchers can run uh, experiments on these devices to do some performance tests and to try to understand this community networks movement this why, is one why is this connected over here to a uh, what looks like a, uh, fi- um, a wi-fi router, wifi router? Well, because as I said, we started with Wi-Fi. Yeah. So we now here we have a Ethernet link wire connecting this router device, which connects to the to the community network. Yeah. And we have the black box or this uh, research device, what the so-called research device, which is where the the researchers run their their experiments. Yeah. So this is a pretty powerful device connected to a low-performance device, yeah. which is a not even a 80 euros worth uh, router. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then uh, we have another two projects. Uh, Commons for Europe project is more about to explaining the concept of openness to the local authorities. We have uh, one, one part of the project is Code for Europe. It's about... Uh, trying to promote open source uh, among councils mostly. Always a good thing. Yeah. And the other part, which is the one we are more involved, is to try to promote open infrastructures, even uh, more uh, challenging. Yeah, that could be... You're probably going to... Have you run into any um, issues with uh, incumbent operators? Yes, uh, well, but fortunately we are under the coverage of the European regulations. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, on the, somehow it can be beneficial. Otherwise, yeah, I think the general evaluation is that it's beneficial to be under this framework. Yeah. 
the incumbents, according to this framework, the incumbents has the obligation to share infrastructures. Then there are some rules to do so, but we are when, uh, we are using these okay. these facilities. Is this mostly for rural projects, or no. what? It could also be within a city. It's like uh, what you said that you are sharing this in in in, in commons. Yeah. So it's not about w the origin of the people. This can be done in the cities. This can be done in rural areas. Yeah. Everywhere. I mean, it's a concept. Okay. So it's like bringing the, the network couple, back to the yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, there will be obviously links to all of this in the show notes. Is there anything else that, that we've missed? Mm, yes, uh, I would encourage people to start doing telcos in their hometowns and this is possible. I mean, it's a proof of concept what we have yeah, done, yeah. but not only Giffinet, there are many other communities. Probably if people check they will find a, a community network nearby their homes. That they can join? Yeah. Is there so, a central place, where uh, a, a global central place that they can go to check? Uh, we are still just mm, coordinating each other. For instance, this event in Fosdem, we, yesterday we had a meeting of do-it-yourself ISPs. Yes. Uh, that's what, one point. People trying to do alternative ways of ISP. That's cool. Uh, we have other specific gathering events like uh, in next uh, May uh, that will be the battle match in Leipzig. Most of the com community networks in at least Europe and I would say all, all, all over the world will be there. And then we have the, the we have a special summit in autumn. Uh, it's uh, called the uh, International Summit for Community Wireless uh, Networks, which is. Yeah, it's it's. I, I would strongly recommend this meeting if, for people to start with all this. Okay, perfect. Uh, this is something very close to my heart, so I'm uh, glad that you're here and uh, look forward to some progress on this. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time and attention. Hi, this is Ken uh, at Boston 2014. I'm on the K2 building and I'm talking to Barros. Is that correct? Pardon? Barrios, yes. Barre, Barre OS. Barro, Barrios. 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 I read Barrios, but then again, I yeah, am Yeah, but dyslexic. you're the, not the only one that... Uh, with so I'm wrong and you're right. Barchi backup archiving recovery open source. Exactly. And your name is? Jörg Steffens. And what's your relationship with this project? Um, I'm... I have uh, working with the Specular for many years, and um, yeah, in the beginning of 2013, we have decided to, to create an own fork and call it Barrios. And I have been initially also on this project. Okay, and what is uh, what what is the project? What's the point? Uh, the project is about backup uh, systems in a heterogeneous uh, network. So uh, we. The service normally running on Linux, uh, but we have also clients for, for Windows, Mac OS, uh, um, and of course uh, the Solaris, uh, HBOX, uh, IEX, and so on and so on. But kind of backups nobody really does them, do they? Pardon? Nobody really does backups, do they? <laughs> but everybody wants to have a recovery option. Uh, <laughs> you only don't do backups once. So tell me, um, how difficult is it to install? What sort of, uh, what do I need in order to do this? And how expensive is it? <laughs> okay, it's not expensive because it's an open source product uh, project. What uh, license is it under? HGPL3. Okay, very good. Um, and Does it run on any operating system or is this a complete, put in a, a CD and run? 
We have an appliance uh, built with Open Studio in a nightly build, um, but of course it's uh, more for, for Linux distributions and uh, we have a package, pre-package for uh, Debian, Ubuntu, CentOS, uh, SUSE, RHEL and so on and so on. So in principle it's also easy to install it. Uh, you just include the um, repository from various.org and install it, uh, the meta package Barrios, and you get a running backup system for, for the initial for the uh, system itself. So it's not an operating system as such? No, it's not it's an operating system. Okay. Except that it's one on one operating system. Now, my experience of backup uh, solutions across the board from NetWare to VMware or to um, uh, uh, HPOS, across the board, Windows, Mac, they've all been very, very, very difficult to operate. Have you fixed that problem? I hope so. That's at least uh, has been our intention, that we can uh, easily start by installing just the server software, having the first client uh, already included, and then we have the option to include uh, more and more clients. And uh, it should be more or less identical for the different platforms to add another clients, as long as you concentrate on file backup. But we also have plugins, for example, Microsoft SQL, because it's a quite complicated part, and helping backup for, for other database systems. Okay, and uh, are you allowed to? Are you able to schedule uh, various different snapshots, and do you do all that sort of jazz? Uh, not uh, incremental not backups, full backups. Okay, okay, this kind, yes, this is a uh, typical stuff we do at backups. Uh, we have full backups, we have differential, we have incremental, we have also something like. Uh, um, virtual full backup, so incremental forever. You create your full backup once, and then uh, the, after this only the incremental backup. But of course, if then the full backup some, uh, someday broke, uh, you got into a problem. So you can recreate a full backup on the server side from your initial full backup and your incrementals. Okay. So what's the underlying technology? Where the, where's the data saved? Tape or...? Um, you can... Yeah, both. Uh, you can save it on, on the disk, but uh, if you have a lot of data, it's uh, normally uh, cheaper to, to store it on tape, especially if you want to keep the data for 10 years or something like this, because you don't need the electricity to, to power up the hard disk all, all the time. Okay. And how, uh, how easy is it to run? Can you, maybe you can run me through the, operating, the dashboard. Uh, I can show it on, on, on this web interface, uh, but uh, you have the configuration and it's file-based and uh, if you add a client, you're adding a section there or uh, including some other files. So uh, most of the things, uh, uh, the core functionality is, is done on, on, on the command client on, on configuration files, but there are different uh, web front ends. And at the moment we're developing also, it's called uh, Barbossa. Uh, it's a special font and uh, it's hopefully it's better than the existing ones. Okay, very good. Um, it's what made you choose the AGPL? Oh, that's uh, have not be really an option because the uh, project where we fork from from Becula uh, has all been AGPL, uh, and so we keep this license. Okay, what was any particular reason for forking from Becula? Yes. Um, because uh, there haven't happened much in the development of Becula for, for the last years and in the last year there haven't been a single commit to the Becula project and uh, so, um, yeah, this is the reason to fork. Okay. Um, Becula has been, my experience of it has been, it's a very good backup utility, yes. but it's yeah. complicated to run. Yeah. Uh, so we are also uh, quite... Ha 
happy with the product Bacula because we are already used it for several years uh, and as it doesn't continue the development uh, we, we um, decided to fork um, and um, by doing the fork we are also trying to make it uh, simpler to use so we have a default configuration that really works and you can build on and also added some commands uh, that help you uh, to, to show specific stuff and of course uh, with the front ends we, we integrate uh, it's all to, to get easier for other people to, to get used to it so since the uh, the fork does, has there been a lot of activity on, on your project yes uh, there are two people who work full time on it so and, uh, who pays them this is Marco van Biering here to my right and Philip uh, to your back. <laughs> and do they, who, who funds their project? Who pays them? So at the moment, uh, not much, but uh, okay, there's also a company uh, behind Barrios, uh, so the Barrios company, yeah. and uh, we hope to sell uh, support and maintenance uh, in the future. But at the moment, it's, uh, it's the development and to yeah, get a good product. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're on to something very important. Uh, I can see a business model there. Okay, is there anything else? Are there new releases coming up, or how can people uh, help the community? Uh, we are, there are plenty of things to do, uh, and where we can improve it. Um, uh, especially for me, myself, I've worked on the documentation to to get it in a, a usable state. Uh, and if uh, somebody wants to contribute, uh, find errors in it, and uh, just test it, uh, and if you find it. Um, to just create back reports and uh, we will fix it hopefully. Cool stuff. Thank you very much for taking the time. Enjoy yeah. the rest of the show. And I'm here talking to Joachim Lindborg, Ralf Meyer, and Edwin Mons, and pretty much anybody else we can rope in. This is the uh, XMPP and SIP, free as in speech, the real time lounge. Jabber XMPP. So, who's going to tell me what XMPP and Jabber is? Oh, I, I will do that. Um, so, uh, Jabber was the original project that was started in 1999 um, for for you know making sure that people didn't have to use. Uh, multiple what does it do? I was, I was oh, going sorry, to sorry. yeah. So that they didn't have to use multiple different instant messaging clients, gotcha, yes, and sorry. just to see if they could centralize it. Um, but uh, the protocol evolved and basically was a way to connect endpoints uh, and exchange structured information. So eventually people thought, okay, well, we can connect other things like, like you know, machines and, and little devices. And, and that maps quite well on it. XMPP is the name of the, of the protocols that were standardized with the IETF. Yeah. And Jabber, Jabber is the client then? Um, well, well, Jabber was the original project name, and it's still basically, um, well, you could compare it to the web versus HTTP. Yeah. So, so Jabber is more, the, you know, all the technologies and the network and, and, and the clients, and whereas XMPP is just about the protocols. The, the uh, on-the-wire yes. protocol. Okay, yeah. very good. Um, did Google Talk support this and drop support recently? So, so yeah, Google Talk... Um, was was uh, one of the the XMPP uh, server implementations. Um, uh, last May, Google decided that they wanted to uh, redo their uh, Hangouts, yeah. um, so they they are now in the process of whittling down their XMPP support there, um, and the, the the current implementation 
uh, yeah, doesn't doesn't really use XMPP anymore. So they have a legacy server that's still be, uh, accessible for those uh, domains that you know that that have an account with Google for their own domain, um, and, and and you can opt to you know to not upgrade to. Um, to uh, to Hangouts, the new version. So is that Hangouts an uh, open protocol that you could use? No. Okay. And what license is XMPP on, under or does it not need a license because it's open? No. Uh, XMPP is a, is a set of open protocols. Um, the base protocols are standardized with the, uh, the IETF. And uh, the uh, XMPP Standards Foundation is also a standards organization that... Um, that that uh, that is for doing extension protocols on top of uh, the base protocols with the ITF. So we have uh, a slightly different way of of dealing with adding new protocol. It's slightly more agile um, than than the IETF. So why? That's probably a question for Google. But why didn't they just extend the XMPP protocol? Actually, they did, and uh, at first, and, and also uh, the the previous versions of uh, of, of Hangouts um, were built on a thing that's called Jingle. Um, Jingle is a, a set of protocols to do session initiation between uh, endpoints for uh, media streams. Uh, they helped standardize it with with us, and then um, well, we are actually still quite in the dark why Google. Uh, decided to to move on. Okay. Uh, well, we can't talk about their projects. So. Yes. So let's move on. What else? Uh, what else do I do? I see here then. Well, yeah. Uh, as a basis for when you have people talking to each other, yep. they commute over a language, so yep. they are chatting English, for example. Yep. Then they can talk to each other. So we now lever it down to the devices. So devices could start to chat to each other if they are friends. So your refrigerator could start to chat to you, telling it your door is open. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Then you Good. need him. If you talk to machine to machine, you need a language that actually talks data. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we've done the, with the extensions. They're now a defined way of sending a temperature as a temperature, which is interoperable in the other end. Okay. I get so that. So the other machine can read it as a temperature. Okay. Well, how was? I have some devices at home, and they, uh, you know, they're off-the-shelf devices, and they're talking to loads of different things that I don't want them talking to. How do I make sure that the stuff that my solution was just put behind a firewall and that was that? But how do I own this myself? How do I own what's going on in my house? Yeah, that's the problem today that the providers of devices instantly get every data up to their cloud service. Yes. And that's where you possibly could access them on a web page yeah. or on an open API if they are kind. Yeah. And what we'd like to do then is to open up the data as chat clients, which could be on any domain in any kind of construction, either all the way down, so you set your ID on your domain on your device, yes. which would be the exact focus on the far end. Yeah. But for now, we sort of go to the cloud API, reopen the data for you to use. Yeah. And then you would be the one to set who's able to befriend to who. But I would need to go through a cloud you device. would need to be up in the, uh, on the internet, yeah. Okay. yeah a, lo a lot of these devices are, are basically their own walled garden, uh, just like um, what you have with the social networking uh, sites, uh, like the, the Googles and the, the Facebooks and the Twitters. They, they like to control their own environment. Yep. Um, and there is apparently no incentive yet 
to 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 have common protocols for for doing all kinds of home automation. There are some efforts in that direction, but it's still far away. So we now have to take a you know the middle ground and and see if we can bridge those protocols. Okay. Um, I would like to see a world where, like my phone, at the, my, I use a SIP provider. I've got a device from the ISP, and the only thing special they've done is put my SIP account with their service. I could equally remove that in the morning and use my own SIP provider. Is that like the goal for I go to my toaster and I, or I go to my fridge and I replace the cloud service that my fridge provides with my own cloud device? How easy is that going to be? Well, depending on the providers, of course, yeah. and the kind of services they are selling. So as soon as there's a protocol that's easily accessible, people would build hardware without services because yes. it's cheap, it's nice, it's easier to do. If you can buy them on the Conrad webpage without any service, that would be the way. But as far as the providers are selling you the thing with the service, they will never open it up for you. Absolutely. Um, Okay, well, it's not in their interest to do it. So yeah. what have I got here, and how does that bear to... How does that link in with the conversation we've just yeah, had? Uh, one product they're selling quite a lot is Philips U lamps, which yes, is a Zigbee-connected network yeah. with lamps. So you can set their temperature, uh, the light temperature, the f- color of them. Yeah. And uh, they have a web API on the local gateway. Okay, just one and sec. They have a, yep. So for the listeners, what we're looking at here is four lamps that are in the uh, in the roof, and they're from Philips, and they t- turn different colors. Yes. Cool. And that's a Zigbee connection down to a, a receiving yeah. device. Yes. So the receiving device is sitting on a just a network hub, uh, and I see a Raspberry Pi. I see loads of other cool stuff. Yeah, so the Raspberry Pi is connected to a local network together with the gateway, yep. and then it has a connection up to internet as well. Okay, yep. So we have the uh, gateway, which have a RESTful API, and it also have a cloud service as Philips. Yeah, okay. But we go so I can still control it via Philips if I want. Yeah, so you still have it in your phone or whatever. But what we now done is that on the HTTP interface, we glued XMPP on it. So therefore, each lamp has a JID, which is called the Jabber Identity on the chatting network. Yeah. So we have John, Ringo, the whole of Beatles are up in the roof. And if you're a friend with them, yeah. you can send them messages. And define being a friend, as in you, uh, yeah, you're a friend, as in chat friend. As, as, as in chat friend. Okay, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, okay, cool. So if you are a person, oh. you could send a text message to it, for example, saying alert, which uh-huh. would blink the lamp. Which is what Ralph is doing now. Oh, yes. And I'm looking at a IRC client, and I need to ask you what IRC client. Well, it's a Jabber client, client, yeah? This is MC Eber. It's it's, it's a very uh, IRC-like Jabber client. And what you see here is uh, five contacts. Um, um, One of them is called Beatles. And then we have John, Paul, Ringo, and George uh, as individual ones. So if you send a message to to the individual uh, Beatles... You can set the U, um, you can set the saturation, and you can set the brightness of, of each of the lamps. And if you send a message to, to Beatles, then uh, you do it for all, all of them at the same time. Well, that's very good. So, so, so there's a grouping mechanism in, 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 in the U um, APIs, um, and the default is, uh, well, the, the basic group is all lamps. So. And you just communicate with them like you would a... Yeah, I'm not sure uh, if, you can, if you can see this, but um, there is a, you just send the text messages 
uh, u equal sign and then uh, a number from uh, 0 to, to uh, uh, 64k. Um, and, and that gives you the range of, of, of colors. And uh, you can also say uh, saturation from 0 to, to uh, 54. And that, that's, you know, if, if it's 0, then, then it's all white. And in, in another, you get deep, 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 uh, deeper colors. So the, the integration here, this could be anything, really. I mean, you're using Philips lights, but that could be, uh, you know, feed the dog. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so coffee yeah. machine. Yeah, coffee machine on. So this yeah. is the protocol that you could use as a human. Yeah. And the, the beauty is you're just leveraging Jabber, and anything that supports Jabber, you can be on work talking to your boss and then uh, feed the dog at home. or Exactly, yeah. And the next level will be, you know, we are human to machine. Yes. But machine to machine, we would talk bare XML, which is an extensible part of the XMPP protocol. Yep. And you would have interoperable data XML transport of understandable data between machines. So, so that's the language for them. Okay, hold on. Yeah. So that's what we have over here. Yep. This machine here also has a connection called Yoko. Yep. And Yoko is able to control part of the Beatles. For instance, she is able... Sorry, I'm, you're cracking me up too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we had quite a bit of fun coming up with these names. So Yoko is able to flip off and on Paul. Now he's flipped off. Yeah. And now he's flipped on again. And Paul, uh, you're able to do that via a, just a regular switch in through a breadboard into a Raspberry Pi. And what's on the Pi then? What's doing the magic there? Um, there's a small program running that was partially written by Joachim, I extended it a bit, um, that will look for signals on the GPIO bus to see if a switch was um, flipped or a light sensor, reading light sensors or distance sensors, then translates that into events for, uh, for these devices using XMPP. It sends machine-to-machine um, messages telling the lights to turn off and on again or change brightness for instance this one will s slowly change the brightness of John over there um, yeah. it's a bit slow um, because I didn't set the thresholds correctly but there's an audio podcast so we can all go oh look it's just dimmed down <laughs> so yes <laughs> indeed um, uh, so this is really showing off the machine-to-machine -machine interoperability and human interaction that can trigger machine-to-machine -machine interoperability. Okay, so we have two other sensors here. What's this one? That's uh, moisture. So it could be under your uh, dishwasher yeah. to see if it's leaking. Okay. And then you have uh, distance. Okay. Ultrasonic distance uh, measurement. So that could be perhaps the color, if you would like to have a color control of the thing as well. Yes. Actually, I, I live beside a graveyard, so I have a, had a plan for a long time to have a motion sensor, and when somebody goes past, that a, the, a coffin will creak and go, I'm not dead! But, um, <laughs> you could use this technology to do that, to ex do exactly that. But, okay. It could also talk to you in, on your chat window, so if you were at the work and yeah. somebody passes the graveyard, you can see a message talk and get a jingle, perhaps, uh, with a video signal getting it back since it's also chatting video messaging conferencing you can take part for example in a multi-user room yeah where we could be talking to each other anonymously and if you say that that room is a smart city every device could join in this multi-user room to discuss the power on the grid 
for example. Okay. So if we are 10,000 electricity meters, anonymously we can talk in a multi-user room talking about our uh, power. Yes. So if okay, there is yeah. increased power in the room, you know that there's a lot of load on the electricity network in real time. Okay. Without revealing who you are, because in a multi-user room you can be uh, anonymous. Okay, and what's the, authentic- the all the authentication for this comes with with the stuff that you get with XMPP, I'm guessing? Uh, on XMPP, each server could decide on wh- what kind of uh, security it would like. You could use OAuth or just password names or certificates. It's, yeah. it's up to you, the server. And the whole XMPP network is, during the spring today, hardening the whole network yeah. to not uh, allow any unencrypted sessions. So we will enforce to use TLS all the way down to the client. Thank you, NSA. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then the service in between, when uh, one domain talks to another domain, they have certificate interchange in peer-to-peer manner. Yeah, okay, good. So... Okay, this is fantastic. So here we have the hardware talking to Raspberry Pi, and the Raspberry Pi talks to a Jabber or Jabberish client. And then um, the other part talking to the Philips, is, the, is that something that you're going to extend to other devices? Or say I've got my fridge, how do, yeah. how do I get my fridge onto uh, the game? We have a very big project in Sweden, where I come from, and we do an energy efficiency project where we get the alarm systems connected to the same way to heating systems because it's very tricky to get an alarm company interoperable communicate to a heating system's other silo you can of course have two apps one for the alarm and one for the heat pump but to get a temperature from a smoke detector to a heating system it's a very long way and a lot of integration projects especially if there are 10 heat pump companies (laughs) having 10 apps with 10 different APIs this is a way for them to federate data over to any of those domains so that's installed now in 20 villas in, in uh, Stockholm area, where they share data over the XMPP network as a peer-to-peer transport of data. And the privacy issues are, are fixed by the fact that it's, you can it's controlled? It's a, yeah, and it's only be between friends. Yeah. The next level would be that you ha- actually have authorization on a special value. So if you're friend to my alarm reading smoke detectors temperature, I wouldn't let you read the status of the alarm. Uh, and, the no- and that's in development, is it? Yeah. The, the idea there is that each client would have a best friend to ask for the level of authority. So if you're a friend of mine and you're asking me for the uh, status, I would ask my best friend, my parent, yeah. am I allowed to give this man the status of the alarm? Okay. And that good. would, of course, say no. That's a lot of development that you need to do still, a lot of integration. Yeah, but the th- thing is with the XMPP is that it's, it's one place where the standardization is done, and that is the XMPP foundation. So this, these standards now are thrown out as experimental, so people use it, but it's only one pipe uh, or where you could go to get them to draft. So everybody needs to do the same thing. So regardless of anybody's doing it, it will be interoperable if you concise to those uh, standards. So even if if small provider of smoke alarms does it and a small provider of uh, you know heat pumps does it, it's in their interest to do it because the more people will do it. But then together, I'm more inclined to buy the small provider's heat pump and the small provider's thing because I can integrate them with yeah, MS. Exactly. Okay, yeah. that makes perfect sense to me. So it's a little snowball that hopefully rolled down the mountain yeah, yeah, to get big. Yeah, it should do. Okay, is there anything else that I need to know? 
Well, you can find more on it on xmpb.org. Yeah, good. And my, the project of energy efficiency is on iea.sust.se. I'll get you to write that down in the, in the notebook now in a second, and links yes. will be in the show notes. Do you have the source code for the Raspberry Pi stuff? Yes, they are on GitHub. And do you, do you have the, um, the schematics and stuff so that... Uh, somebody could do it we will arrange that to have it will probably be a, a everyday tryout do it this uh, to control your home lamps did i miss anything or are we are we good i think we're good i think we're good how has the beer been very nice i'm very dry thought yes <laughs> okay guys thank you very much and uh, keep doing what you're doing thank you thank you much. cool lounge and there's loads of video screens around and I'm standing with Emil beside the Jitsi table. Tell me, what's Jitsi? Jitsi is an open source project that allows you to do audio and video calls and video conferencing. Many people view it as an open source alternative to Skype or uh, other such applications. It's been around for 10 years and uh, probably one of the uh, most important features in Jitsi is the accent that we have on security because we uh, all of our codes are encrypted using SRDP. We support key negotiation protocols like ZRDP from Fee, uh, from Phil Zimmerman and also DTLS SRDP. And we have OTR for end-to-end message encryption. Uh, so um, that's a big, that's a very important thing for us. Okay, I have no idea what you said, but that was going to be my next question. Okay, um, tell me, uh, you've been going for ten years. How come you're? What sort of license are you released under? We released under LGPL. Okay. Yes. And how difficult is it to install and on what platforms are you supported? It's actually not difficult at all. We uh, work on Windows, Linux, and Mac OS X. And uh, it's, uh, you just download it. Uh, we're even in Debian since this summer. Uh, so uh, just go to jitsi.org and you download it and install it. And it runs on, uh, on these operating systems. We have an Android version on the way. Uh, it's still in development, but it's coming along pretty nicely. And actually... Uh, a couple of months ago, we started working on a second project, which is what you see here on the stand. Uh, this is JitMeet. Um, so um, this uh, this application allows you to basically do open source Hangouts. Um, it uh, uses WebRTC uh, on the client side, so you just need Chromium and Chrome, uh, and it will um, soon support other WebRTC compatible browsers such as Firefox. So just go. Yeah. Sorry, just I need to describe to people what we're yes. looking at. So we're looking at a TV screen, and if I wave in there, the center screen comes up very much like pictures I've seen of Hangouts. I've never used Hangouts, but uh, and on the bottom there are various other cameras. Where are they? There are different clients running, are they? Yes, there's uh, all of these clients here are participants in the conference. Yeah. Uh, so they're just. Uh, sharing one single conference and uh, you could imagine those all over, all over the world uh, sharing uh, the same the same conference and talking but WebRTC is a relatively new uh, protocol uh, and you're already supporting that so yes how did you manage to do that so quick actually WebRTC uh, it is a relatively new technology but it reuses a lot of existing standards for real-time communication such as RTP for example ICE for not traversal DTLS SRDP so uh, the Jitsi's the role here uh, is really not that much into the client side although um, the JITMate application is currently handled by the Jitsi community but what's really interesting here is the server side the bridge that relays all the video streams because every participant is just sending one video stream to the bridge and then the bridge sends back all the video streams for all the other participants. And that bridge is actually the heart of Jitsi. 
moved to the server. Uh, that's why I call it the Jitsi Video Bridge. And it's very lightweight because it just relays video. It doesn't mix anything. It's so lightweight, actually, that this entire conference here is taking about 30% of this box here. That's where the bridge, re the bridge runs currently. It's, um, what sort of a device is that? That's an Intel NUC okay. with an i3 processor. And uh, we're hosting the conference on top of it. And we even have further optimizations, so it's going to be even, even more uh, powerful. So if I had a shared VPS, is that something that I could run on that? A shared what, sorry? I have a VPS, uh, you know, a virtual private server, you know, one of those right, yeah. nine euros a month. Of course, yeah. yes. Uh, we actually have the Meet Jitsi service, meet.jit.si, where you can try it out. Uh, it yeah. runs on a, on a VM uh, somewhere in the, in the network, and um, it's exactly what it's meant for. It's, um, it, it's really lightweight. And obviously, there's the service that we use just as an example, but you can download this whole thing uh, with... Uh, from jitme.org, J-I-T-meet.org. Yeah. Uh, you can install everything. We use the Prosody XMPP server, which is a very cool one, the Nginx uh, web server, and uh, yeah. Okay, very good. And how complicated is it to... Uh no, that's okay. I think the... Okay, fine. Um, do I need... So I want to install Jitsi. Do I need an account or anything uh, strange like that? How do I get my friends on? How do I get my mom and dad on? Um, so uh, if you want to get your mom and dad, I think JitMeet is going to be very easy for you because yeah. you just point them to a URL. They don't need an account. Uh, you just point them there. It creates a conference for them. So they, you, you just need to take the link, the URL, and send it over email to everyone else. They click on it, and you're in a conference. That's it. You don't need accounts. You don't need anything. Yeah. Uh, Jitsi itself is, a, is, is what is commonly known as a rich client. Yeah. So that you need to install. We need to connect to servers. You need to find an account somewhere. That is a more complicated process. Normally... Uh, either you have to know a little bit about these things in order to use it or you have to have someone who deploys it for you. This yeah, is yeah. generally how people have been using it, uh, which is indeed some sort of a, um, a limitation. Yeah. And that's why we are very, um, really very enthusiastic about Meet Jitsi because it's really very easy to use. It's the simplest video conferencing experience that you're going to get ever. It's easier than Hangouts, too. it's easier than GoToMeeting or WebEx or whatever. Okay, fantastic. And it's entirely open source. Excellent. Is there a company behind this, or are you just doing this for love? There's, um, there is a company behind this, but not as in any exclusive way. It's just that a bunch of the developers happen to be working for BlueJimp, uh, which is a company that provides development services around Jitsi. So uh, okay. if, if some customers of ours are basically saying, oh, yeah, this uh, Jitsi is doing 95% of what we need, could you please add the thing that we're missing and that we really need for our use case. That's where we come in. And everything, most of the things that we develop are open source as well. And that's how the project grows and yeah. etc. And we have voluntary contributors as well, like uh, some of us here. So um, uh, it's not, it's not a, a, the, the, the company doesn't really play uh, some sort of limiting role in the project. Okay, fantastic. Anything else I missed on, on this whole thing? I know you need to disassemble everything, so... Um, uh, well, it would probably be uh, good to point your uh, listeners to uh, your audience to the lightning talk that we had yesterday, yeah. uh, the Jitsi Video Bridge lightning talk on uh, on FOSDEM. That would probably be of interest, and uh, uh, there's a recorded video, so they would be able to see more clearly what this is about. Absolutely, I'll put a link into the show notes for this episode. Okay, thank you very much, and yeah, thank uh, you very much for stopping by. Home. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. Bye. Hi everybody, this is Ken. It's almost the end of FOSDEM 2014. This is the first time I've been here and I'm talking to Jan-Frederick Martins. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Hi everyone. 
So what's your involvement with FOSTEM? You're wearing a lovely yellow t-shirt. Well, I'm one of the approximately 25 people organizing FOSDEM. Um, we start each year around July, August, contacting uh, people who are, might be interesting to present their findings, their projects during the main tracks. Uh, we also have a need for keynote speakers. And then once the months move on, we go into details. We go and look for developer rooms. Uh, as you might know, we have about 20, 22 developer rooms focused on a certain project, such as uh, Fedora. And every developer room has their responsible, making sure that the quality of the talks in that dev room is... Uh, well, as it should be. So the developer room uh, people pick the talks for that track? That is correct. We have in total more than 400 presentations, so doing that ourselves would be uh, not really feasible. We focus on the keynotes, the main tracks, and the lightning talks, but we leave the review of the developer room's talk to the developer room responsibles. So how many talks do you have to make sure are organized then? Well... We ourselves uh, do about 20 main track talks and about 20 lightning talks in total as well. Okay, this is, has to be the biggest event that I've ever been at and the organization is military in its, in its efficiency. How have, how, how have you managed to do that? Did that happen overnight or is it just incremental improvements? Uh, it's trial and error. <laughs> the first FOSDEM, which back in the day was called OSDEM, was in 2000. Uh, and I can assure you, we didn't do things as professionally back then as we do now. It's a matter of learning, uh, listening to the remarks of visitors, um, getting great input from all kinds of sources, having a larger team to help out, um, having more financial possibilities as well with sponsorship, with donations, which of course much appreciate from our visitors. And well, this is the 14th edition right now. And a lot of them, a lot of the organizers have been active in the organization since 2003. So we have a lot of know-how and a, a super efficient and motivated team of staff and let's not forget the volunteers because the volunteer group is even larger than the, the core staff group. How many volunteers are there? Uh, I would say about 100 it over is, the weekend. Yeah. And they're everywhere. Like I, I've interviewed some of the guys down taking cloaks and they're like developers of main projects and uh, they're there putting up with grief from people like me looking for my coat. <laughs> absolutely fantastic. One of the things though you, you were very, very lucky in getting the building. Oh, yes, we're very thankful to the Université Libre de Belgique, so the university that we are right here. We have started in 2000 in another campus of theirs, and in 2001, if I'm not mistaken... There goes some don't, don't worry, folks, those are empty beer bottles. No need to panic. <laughs> so in 2001, I believe, we moved to the Solbosch campus, uh, which was at the time quite a small event, just one single building, a couple of rooms, and we grew and we grew. Um, and the first years, we got the assistance from the Secular Informatique, which is a local student organization, and we were able to book the rooms uh, through them. But as we grew, we got into contact with the uh, ULB directly. The ULB noticed that there were quite a lot of people during the first weekend or the second weekend of February each year. And so we they were wondering, who are you? What are you doing here? And we have a very good relationship with them. It is, uh, it, it's just mind-blowing when I arrived off the train. Mm -hmm. I, I've told the story. There's this woman on the tram and she had no idea. 
she just looked out and suddenly the tram was empty of all these people. <laughs> Must have thought it was a flash mob or something. So um, what happens next? What's, what's the clean-up? Are you finished? When, when are you going to be finished tonight? Uh, hopefully we'll be finished by approximately 9 or 9.30 p.m., uh, at four, which is half an hour ago, we start removing the signalization. We start closing the first developer rooms. Then we need to move on to the individual buildings, close them one by one, clean them, uh, making sure that all the equipment that we have there, ranging from cleaning gear to video equipment, audio equipment, uh, tables, chairs, everything which is not located normally at the university, has been put in a central location so that the renting companies can come and pick it up on Monday. It will be a stressful couple of hours. Well, it's the, I don't think people appreciate the logistic nightmare that this is, and so I'm not going to take too much more of your time. I just want to say from everybody who has participated in FOSTEM, thank you very much. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant thing that you're doing for the community. Yeah, it's not just us. Let's not forget about the volunteers, the ULB, the Secular Informatique, and in fact all people involved in the organization of FOSTEM.
You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.